0: Hey, hello there, it's good to be here. Actually, it's good to be anywhere. This is H. Lee, AKA Harris Insler, and you're listening to TGMBH, These Ghosts Must Be Heard, a podcast that shares stories and interviews with people who have suffered a loss due to OUD and to others who might be impacted by OUD, opioid use disease. Today, my interview is with Mary Beth Sahaki. Mary Beth, please say hello.
1: Hi, everybody out there. Good to be here.
0: And it's good to be somewhere at, at any point in, in time. Yeah. So could you just give the listeners your demographics, like where you live, what kind of area?
1: Sure. I live in um, Bear, Delaware, and it's suburban. Quite a little neighborhood. A lot, of, a lot of different races in here, which I absolutely love. We're all great neighbors.
0: A little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I uh, was a registered nurse for 36 years at Christiana Hospital. Uh, my last 16 years, I worked as a NICU nurse, taking care of those tiny oh, little babies oh. that come into the world way too soon. I yeah. need a lot of help.
0: Well, God bless but you I for really,
1: that. Yeah, I really, really loved my work. And um, I was also trying to help my son, Matt, at that point in time with his addiction to opioids. So I was pretty busy.
0: Could you describe Matt in one sentence?
1: Beautiful.
0: And maybe we'll expand upon that. Perhaps you can tell us specific traits.
1: Matt was a very compassionate man, even as a little boy. He would bring home stray dogs, stray cats. No matter I don't know where he found them. I don't know if he went out like the Pied Piper, but we always had animals in our home. Matter of fact, there was this cat one day, and the kids in the neighborhood were shooting a BB gun at it. Well, Matt was probably about seven or eight, and he came home with tears in his eyes. And I said, "Honey, what's the matter?" And he said, "Mommy, there's a the little kitty, and these boys are shooting it with a BB gun." And I, you know, I'm an animal advocate, so that really made me as angry as Matt was sad. Yeah. So we get in the car and we go find the cat. So we bring it home, and oh, God bless the little thing matt nursed that back to health and took care of it i didn't even have to tell him to do anything he was that kind of a person and as he grew his compassion extended to people he taught me how to give how to look past the person and see the soul of that person he he was just an an incredible man i just loving and compassionate and giving and i wish he loved himself as much as everybody else loved him. He was funny, a wild sense of humor, a practical joker. For Halloween, I still have his masks downstairs. He would buy these crazy rubber masks and he would hide in the bushes. Out in front of the house, and when the poor little kids would come up to the door for candy, <laughs> he would jump out and scare the big Jesus out of them. That's, That's Halloween. Just, yeah, and he would just laugh and laugh and laugh. And I am terrified of roller coasters. Well, I took him and his older brother Mike to Hershey Park, and I didn't know what was going on, but the two of them were kind of like you know hunky together and <sighs> talking. And I'm like, what? What are you? What? What's going on? What's going on? The well, next thing I know. Matt's got me in the air, put me in the roller coaster seat, put the thing down, and just started howling. Well, you know, the thing takes off and I'm in it and, oh. and you know I am screaming bloody murder because I am terrified. I'm terrified of heights, I'm terrified of speed. I see those two down there bent over, <laughs> laughing so bad that when I Finally, the ride ended. Matt was so hysterical. He goes, Mom, he goes, all he heard was you scream.
0: (laughs) My son was, he did it not with action, but with words. He would, I I don't even remember all the stories, but I I have him on video. So what were his specific skills or strengths, his talents? He
1: was great with his hands. I used to call him MacGyver. (laughs) And that was his favorite show. And I would come home, and he would have the toaster taken apart or the blender, (laughs) and he would be able to put it back together. Wow. And if if I had a problem, you know, mechanical, I would say, hey, Matt, you know, what do you you think? And I don't know how he taught himself or what he did, but he knew how to fix things, even as a young, you know, grade school, high school. Wow. It's like, where, where do you learn this? You know, it's funny because his career, he became a car mechanic. And he owned his own business. Wow.
0: So, you know, he was very talented, hands-on kind of guy and and just knew how to make
1: things work. That's terrific. I'm total opposite. Me
0: too. I'm not good with many things. I'm learning about the computer stuff, but just on an above beginner level.
1: Exactly. That makes Um, two of us.
0: (laughs) I just can't stand it when all these kids, they do something fast. I say, wait, I I didn't see that. You want to tell me again? And forget it. I said, "I'll, I'll figure it out. What would make him laugh?
1: Oh, gosh. My reaction to his practical jokes. He owned a house at the beach, and he had a really close girlfriend. So he led me to believe that he bought a diamond for her. Mom, you got to come down. I have to show this to you. It's a real beauty. I want your opinion. You know, yada, yada, yada. And I'm getting all excited, thinking, oh, my God, there's finally going to be an engagement. Because this girl, I just loved her. Her name was Natalie, so I called her Matt and Matt. They were like, you know, twins, and they were they were just perfect together. So I'm getting myself all excited. I'm trying not to say anything to anybody, but, you know, I'm thinking, oh, wow, it's going to be so cool. I've got the wedding on the beach already in my mind, the whole bit. So I get down to his place, and we get in his Jeep, and we're driving to the marina. And I'm going, well, maybe he's going to propose to her here. I, I You know, who knows? I don't know where she is. I, she was nowhere to be found. So we drive up to a boat slip, and there's this boat. And he goes, Mom, isn't she beautiful? This is what you know, this is the gem that I was talking to you about. Oh, wow. and I my throat and I was like, Are you kidding me? And he goes, Aren't you happy for me? And I'm like, Matt, oh. I was expecting a diamond. I was expecting a wedding. And he's like, Oh, uh uh-uh. uh, no, no way, Mom. We go out on the boat. And you go, here, Mom, just sit here. You know, you'll be fine. I won't do anything funny. The yeah. next thing I know, he of goes course. from zero to 50, and, you know, <laughs> Mom's hanging on for her dear life. Hat gone, you know, sunglasses gone, and he'd be just, like, laughing.
0: Mom, you should have known he was going to do something.
1: Well, you know, but you <clears> want <throat> to trust him. You, know? you <laughs> want to say, oh, you would never do anything to hurt me or anything. And I remember one time we were out on the boat, and there was a bunch of dolphins. He dove off the boat and was out there swimming with the dolphin. Like, it it was incredible, and I was like, oh my God, you know? I didn't have a video camera. I wish I did. Mm. And, you know, back in those days, you know, we didn't have cell phones like we have today. You know, that's a memory that I have in my brain. You know, I wish I had pictures of it, but it was just like, he was just a natural swimmer, and, and just, it was incredible. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen.
0: He's like He was like a little puppy playing. Yeah.
1: I always said, you know, he never like grew up to be a cynical adult. He always had that little boy in the man's body.
0: I can vouch for that for myself, too. Yeah. (laughs) My wife and my daughter say, "Okay, now I think you're going to be 13 next year. Because they always (laughs) said I was 12. I said, do I ever make it to 13?
1: Even when he was an adult, she'd say, you know what, Mom? He goes, I don't need to worry about anything. You worry enough for both of us. <laughs> so I'm just not going to worry. You, you, you worry.
0: When did Matt first interact with any kind of drug?
1: The story began, he was in 11th grade, and I remember coming home early one day. And him and his friend were sitting on the deck, and they were smoking pot. You know, I walked out on the deck and it was like, I can still remember the look on their faces. It was like, holy crap, you know, (laughs) oh my God, what are you doing home, mom? I'm like, excuse me, I live here, what are you doing on the deck with a joint? That's the question. So, oh, mom, we're just trying it out. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, we're done. So, of course, I called the other boys' parents, had them come over, we had a big discussion and i was really kind of worried at that point because you just never know um i didn't know about the genetic how easily it was to become addicted so i sent Matt at that point in time in delaware we had nothing for teenage kids so i sent him down to newport news virginia to a treatment facility you know he came home and he was like mom it, it was just a joint i'm not doing anything and and he was fine for years and years and years
0: did you know or, or could you have known that after he went to rehab you didn't smoke?
1: I was one of those kind of moms where you live in my house, you go to school, I'm searching your room. I mean, I was really, you know, closets, store, every nook every and cranny, and I never found anything. And his grades were good, his behavior was good. You know, there were no red flags, there was nothing. He was an athlete, he played lacrosse, he played football. You know, I had no indication that um, he was continuing to use in those years like i said he was a mechanic and i remember one day he lifted an engine and he felt a pop in his back so he called me and he said you know mom i have this horrible pain in my back so i said you know i want you to take some you know ibuprofen put some ice on it you know don't do any lifting or bending and you know make an appointment to go see your doctor and they didn't even bother to x-ray They just gave him Percocet, and he called me, and he goes, Mom, they gave me Percocet and told me to take it every six hours, and I said, oh, God. You know, it was almost like that bell went off in my head. I don't know if this is a good thing, and I was like, you know, Matt, how about if you just take the Motrin, ice it and heat it, and, you know, let's try it. No, Mom, I'm going to do what the doctor tells me because I'm really in a lot of pain, and I have to go to work. So he took the Percocet. Unfortunately, his body responded very well to it. He liked not having any pain, which, Hmm. you know, I mean, who wants to be in pain? Right. Especially back pain. So he would take it and he would go to work. And at first, like I would go down to the beach house, just, you know, pop in. At first, I didn't notice anything at all. And I thought, okay, okay, well, maybe we are using it as needed. There's no abuse going on. But then as months went on, He's still using the Percocet. He was still having pain when he didn't use it.
0: How old was he at this time?
1: Probably about 28. But he was living with Natalie. And she would tell me, there's a little changes in his behavior. Like he comes home and he's sleepy all the time. Mm. You know, I'm worried about him. Something's off. I brought him up here. And, you know, he lived down in Sussex County and I'm in Newcastle County. So I brought him up here. And they did an MRI for the first time and all kinds of tests. Well, he had a really bad herniated disc. And he had another malformation that they said that he was born with. That if it wasn't corrected, that he could be paralyzed. So it wasn't like it was an unnecessary surgery. Right. So he had surgery in, I believe it was 2007. It was really kind of... Odd, because when the surgeon saw the amount of Percocet Matt was getting, he was stunned. Wow. And he was like, you know, who is giving you this much Percocet? And Matt's like, well, I have a pain management doctor. And, and you know, the doctor looked at me and said, you know, this is no good. So they did the surgery, and they were giving Matt 5 milligrams of Percocet. Well, Matt was used to taking 30 milligrams wow. of Percocet. Yeah. Yes. So he was not a happy camper in the hospital. Unbeknownst to me, the social worker at the hospital hooked him up with a so-called pain management doctor. Oh, geez. Now, the problem that I ran into, and I don't know if you did, but because Matt was an adult. Yep. HIPAA. Yeah. I hate HIPAA. You're not allowed to be told anything. I looked at his scripts. I finally got his scripts, and I looked. They were giving him 30-milligram tablets oh. of Percocet, wow. yep. along with 98 10 milligrams of methadone. <clears throat> you know me, I confronted him, and I said, you know, Matt, this is crazy. You, you don't need this. Well, once they're hooked, you know, right. they're hooked, and right. then they do need it. And, you know, unfortunately, even though I was a nurse, I didn't have the education as far as how the brain responds to opioids, that I do now. I thought, well, why can't you just stop taking on that? Hmm. I didn't know, you know, that he would go through a horrible withdrawal. I mean, I feel really stupid now looking back. No,
0: but you know what? You can't do that because I felt the same way. This was 2006. I was lost. I had no clue. I didn't think this could be happening. Late 2004, we found out. And he only made it to 2006. We were lost. We would just go by what they would tell us. Yep. Plus, there weren't the great facilities. You know, as I know, it's way behind the treatment.
1: Absolutely. I think the problem that we ran into also was the insurance industry. They don't recognize parity. Addiction and mental health issues are supposed to be treated exactly as any other health issue, cancer, heart disease, diabetes. But they discriminate.
0: He was going to a pill mill or something.
1: He was. So you met me. I'm finally seeing this. So what I did was I made copies of the prescriptions, and I sent them to the Delaware Board of Medicine. Wow. And I thought, you know, this is baloney. I wrote a letter. You're, they're going to kill my son. This is what they're distributing. It's cash or credit card only. They didn't even take insurance. I thought, you know, I wonder how much cash walks out of that place It's not even reported to the IRS. You know, really, these guys were making bucks hand over fist. So I thought, okay, I did the right thing. I'm trying to go through the right channels. Well, I waited and waited, and uh, they did send an investigator over to the pill mill doc. Well, unfortunately, that pissed him off. So rather than talking to me, having a meeting with Matt, trying to wean Matt off, what he did was he just kicked him out of the program. Hmm. And the problem that I really had with the Delaware Board of Medicine is I got a letter from them, and I could not believe it. They told me that they found no problem with the prescribing methods of this physician. And I was like, are you crazy? Are you getting kickbacks? What is wrong with you people? This is crazy. He's going to kill himself. But you can't, you know, they, they just did not want to listen so little by little matt started you know that slippery slope down deeper and deeper into the addiction he ended up losing his business because you know you can't operate on somebody's brakes if you don't know what you're doing people were seeing that you know he wasn't himself then he couldn't keep up the payments on the house and i did try to help him because i really loved that house and we both were beach people and and we just found such Peace at the beach. We had such great times down there and I really didn't want to let it go, but I had my own mortgage. So I, I tried to carry the house probably for about eight months and then I just couldn't do it anymore. So we packed him up and Matt moved back home with me. And I can tell you it was such an eye-opener to see the broken system. Oh. It's not even treatment. It was a joke. I called it the revolving door of treatment. It's like you have to fail first before the, anybody would even help you. I can't tell you how many facilities I would get him in. And he'd call me in seven days and go, Mom, they said I'm fine. And I'd be like, are you kidding me? Well, no, well, the insurance is not going to pay for it anymore because he's detoxed. And, you know, he's acting like a normal human being. Well, guess what? He might have been, but his brain wasn't. Right. Right. And as soon as he got out, I think we might have had a week, maybe two weeks, where he was good. And then next thing I know, you know, he's right back, taking the Percocet. And now, like you say, with hindsight, you know, I mean, that is such a gift if we only had it when we needed it. Yes. Because now I understand. I mean, I would have fought more. I would have mortgaged my house. I would have done whatever I had to do to keep him in a facility for months. You know, they're saying now, you know, the brain doesn't even start to heal for 12 months, 18 months, two years. The damage that's done is is so unbelievable. We just didn't understand it back then. And like you said, you you trust the so-called professionals. So I trusted them. So I would bring him home, and I'd be so happy because... He looked like Matt. Hmm. He acted like the old man, and it was wonderful. And he would get another job, but because of the back surgery, he could no longer be a mechanic. So he would work at an auto parts store and, you know, be the person that you came in and you told him what was going on with your car, and he'd tell you what part you needed to do, and, you know, he really liked it. That's good. When you're using drugs and you're nodding off at the counter, it doesn't make a really good impression you know would lose a job and then we'd go back into treatment and then he'd get another job and then he'd lose the job and then we'd go back to the treatment and I don't know I mean you know you love your child and you want to do what's best for them you know back then it was that horrible tough love and I I think it still is out there today but I think people are more knowledgeable and I could never do it. I could never do it. So Matt, I had a finished basement, you know, bedroom, little kitchenette, living room, bathroom. So that's where Matt lived. You know, I would help him, you know, get to places. I would put gas in his car. I would, I tried to do the best I could at the time with the knowledge that I had. I had no idea how powerful and relentless this disease truly is.
0: I had one woman in an interview. She said something Everyone should wrap their heads around. Heroin is the cancer of all drugs.
1: Well, you know, it's funny that you bring that up. My saving grace was Matt was terrified of needles. Hmm. So I never worried about heroin, and I never thought he would die. I mean, how stupid is that? But when you snort Percocet, well, guess what? You might as well be using a needle because it's the same effect. Of course. It, It just... Went from, like I said, it was was years, eight years, of trying to get him into treatment, of keeping him in treatment. His last go round was at Bowling Green in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, which had a very good reputation. He was actually there for three weeks, and we were only allowed to visit on the weekends. And I'll tell you, they wouldn't let you take a camera. They would only let Hmm. you stay for so long. And I'll tell you what, looking back, I wish I snuck my damn phone in. So I could have gotten some pictures of him because he looked so wonderful. He even said to me, he goes, Mom, it's so great that I can smell, I can taste. I feel like I got that monkey off my back. Okay, this is wonderful. We're good to go. And what they did back in the day, they would say, to get them away from people, places, and things where they're gonna go right back to what they did. So they suggested that he go to the Boca House in Florida. So once again, I'm thinking, okay, you people are the experts. Well, (laughs) looking back, that was the biggest mistake I could have ever made. It was the first time Matt was really on board to go anywhere because it was in Florida. He was going to be back at the beach. The Boca House had a really great reputation. And I thought, okay, it's a sober home, though. It's not a treatment facility. So, you know, I thought, God, are you really ready for that? And, but, you know, once again, the counselor's gone, oh, yeah, you know, we send people there all the time. They've got a great success rate, blah, 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 blah.
0: When they let him go after three weeks, was that like the time that the insurance would pay maybe?
1: Absolutely. Okay. And I didn't know that I could maybe fight that. You know, once again, you know, Matt was ready to roll. He was happy to go to Florida. And and I thought, okay, well, being away from people that you know, where you're going to go right back to, I thought it was a good idea. It
0: sounds logical.
1: Yeah, well, it did at the time. Right. But, you know, at that point in time, Southern Florida was the Mecca hub of opioids. They didn't bother to mention that when they were telling me to send to Florida. That was one little dirty little secret that nobody told the parents.
0: Maybe there was some uh, quid pro quo going on
1: there. Uh-huh, that's what I'm thinking. So Matt gets down to the Boca house, and I'll never forget it. He calls me the second night that he's there, and he goes, Well, it's great. He goes, I'm actually out walking to the beach. And I was like, What? You're by yourself? You just got out of treatment? You're walking to the beach? I said, Where's your counselor? Where? Oh, no, Mom, we're allowed to come and go as we please. I said, Matt, you, you don't even know where you are. I said, go back, go back to the place. And, and he did, and we were in communication just about every day. And, and I must say they did do some things right. They got him a resume together. They were trying to help him find work. He was going to meetings, but somewhere along the line, he was on the beach one day and met a girl who had Xanax. So here we go again. Of course, you get a call from the Boca House counselor and say, well, you know, he's using. So instead of putting him back into the treatment plan, they're going to kick him out on the street unless we came up with $3,500. Yeah. So here I am on the phone hysterical with my husband and I'm like, are you kidding me? How can you just kick people out? He has no family there. He has nowhere to go. And this is okay with you? Well, he can't stay here because he's using again. Well, it's your fault because you let him go. You know, you did not supervise him. What do you want me to do? I'm a thousand miles away, so what do I do? I give him my credit card number and say, you know, do whatever you need to do. So they put him in an IOP program, which to me wasn't enough. He needed to go into treatment.
0: Excuse me, what's IOP?
1: It's uh, like where they go during the day. Oh, okay. He needed inpatient. Right. He didn't need to be, you know, able to go out on the streets at night. He, he needed more help. And, you know, like you say, he, he wanted to stay there. He didn't want to come home. And I thought, if I bring you home, where are you going to go? There's no treatment here in Delaware. It really was horrible. So he wanted to stay in Florida, and he promised me, you know, he would be on the straight in Maryland. You want to believe them. You, you really, with your whole heart and soul. Of course. You. Well, he ended up in another sober home which this guy, I spoke to him several times, and he sounded like he was the Elvis Presley Uh. of the recovery world. He built himself up like he knew what he was doing, and he's been in this business for years and years, and he knows how to help people and blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm desperate. You know, I'm going to take help from anybody that's offering it because, you know, I can't get down to that. I had a job. I just couldn't call the hospital and go, I've got to fly down to Florida. I don't know how long I'm going to be. And Matt was over 30 then. Right. What am I going to do? Say, Matt, you you got to come home. He was loving it down there. You know, he was doing his thing. He finally found a job as a welder. To me, he was doing well. Every time I talked to him, there were no red flags. When Matt would use, his verbiage would change. Like, instead of calling me mom, he'd call me mama. Right. So that was a red flag. Uh, And, you know, I could just tell the speech, the everything. He was probably, well, he was using, but he was doing a great job of covering it up. Still never using heroin, still afraid of needles, but now he was combining Percocet and Xanax. I got to the point where I would never send him money because I figured, you know, you have a job. You need to pay your own bills, but I would send him care packages you know, his beefaroni t-shirts, stuff that he couldn't get down in Florida to his so-called sober home, which I found out later was nothing but an apartment building where this guy had rented all these apartments out and had three or four people in an apartment and he was calling it a sober home. So what happened? You know, Matt had used, he was in bed, his roommate who was a young kid, went out drinking, and he came back after curfew. So he woke everybody up. Well, the owner comes into the room and wakes Matt up. Well, it was obvious from what I was told that Matt was using again. He was, you know, really disoriented. Everybody that I talked to said that Matt was really in distress, and it was very, very visible. Well, nobody called me. The man who ran the facility never called me to let me know. And, of course, Matt was unable to call me. What this man did was rather than calling 911, he took him to the Boca Inn at 2.30 in the morning and told this young 18-year-old to keep an eye on him.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Unfortunately, I guess Matt must have had pills on him, and he was never checked. So he was just dropped off. And uh, that was 2.30 in the morning. Uh, Matt passed away at 10 of 5 that morning in a hotel room in a bed with this kid finally realizing that Matt wasn't snoring, that this was respiratory distress. He finally called 911, and they did work on him, but it was too late. Mm. January the 3rd was a Saturday. I had spoken to Matt Friday night, told him I loved him, told him this year was going to be a beautiful year because he was at an N.A. meeting. I, I started stalking his Facebook, and I mm-hmm. saw that, you know, New Year's Eve, he was at an N.A. meeting. So I thought, okay, thank you, God. Yeah. You know, he's, he's good. And it was around lunchtime. And usually I would speak to Matt, and I was so busy. I had a very sick baby. And I, I don't know if that was just God's way of sparing me because, you know, I would have started to worry had he not answered his phone. My husband showed up at the hospital, and I thought, oh, how nice. You know, he's bringing me lunch. Mm -hmm. Never in a million years did I ever think what he was going to tell me was was about to happen. So I went out into the lobby area, and he had been crying. And uh, I saw his face, and we had just lost my mother-in-law not too long ago, and I thought, oh, my God, it must be his father. So I walked up to him and I grabbed his arm and I said, oh God, I'm sorry, is it your dad? And he said, no, it's not, he's dead. And I remember, I guess it was like an out-of-body experience Yes. because I remember just going completely blank and numb. And I remember hearing somebody screaming And all I could think about was, oh, my God, this is the NICU. That mom needs to stop screaming. She's going to scare the babies. I had no idea that it was me that was screaming until several of my colleagues came running over, and they grabbed me, and they put me in the admission room, and thank goodness nobody was in there. And they sat me down, and they kept saying, you have to breathe, you have to breathe, and I, I kept, You know, I I just said, no. You're in shock. How how do you do this? And I kept telling my husband, no, no, no. It can't be Matt. Somebody stole his wallet. This is a mistake. It can't be Matt. No, no. Somebody would have called me. The person that dropped him off was notified at 6 a.m. that Matt had passed away.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: He never called me. Never called me. So I said to my husband, please call him. Please call him. It has to be a mistake. So my husband went out of the room, and, you know, I am just sitting there like, I I just wanted to die. To be honest with you, I just wanted to die. And I wanted to catch Matt before he got too far away from me. And I remember my husband coming back in and he said, Mary Beth, it's Matt. I'm so sorry. And I just felt like my soul just broke. Like it just crashed to the floor. My heart, my soul Everything. And I I just, to this day, I can hear those words and see his face. And I I still, it brings me to my knees, the regrets that I have for not bringing him home, for not flying down there, for not doing more. I, I think they will stay with me forever. I don't think they will ever leave me. My husband drove me home, and I remember calling this man and leaving him messages. He wouldn't answer his phone. He knew. Oh, absolutely he knew. And I remember my last message was hysterical, ugly, and he finally called me back, and I said to him, you know, why did you do what you did? I trusted you with my son. You should have called me. You should have taken him to the emergency room. You should have done something to keep Matt safe, you promised me you would keep him safe and you didn't do anything. He never said he was sorry. His response to me was, people die here every day.
0: (laughs) That's a good advertisement.
1: Yeah, that's what he said to me. People die here every day. I will never forget it.
0: When I first started this podcast, I only had expectations of possibly helping others who have lost a loved one to OUD. After listening to Mary Beth's story, I think I might have changed my mind. I looked at both of our stories. Mary Beth started in 2005 when he hurt his back and was prescribed opioids. My story started when Zach hurt himself in 2004. We both listened to professionals, starting with the rehabs to residentials and sober living homes. Mary Beth's son, Matt, died 10 years after this whole thing started. Our story, unfortunately, only lasted two years when Zach died. Mary Beth, after six years, expressed some regrets. I also had regrets, and this was 11 years after Zach died. We both blamed ourselves. Even with all of that, we still believed that there was some hope. Our stories are not that much different, it's just the amount of time it took for this insidious disease to take our sons. I realized all this and the eureka moment came. I have learned so much through listening, not only to Mary Beth's stories, but all the stories and all the people I've interviewed. What does that tell you listeners? Number one, you will hopefully learn by listening and sharing stories. You will gain much by sharing your stories Because this will take this load off your mind. This will take, get rid of the stigma. So share your stories. And by doing so, you not only help yourself, you may help someone else. Your story on the Voices page said, I would do anything for a do-over. And like most parents, we're hard on ourselves. Because we are supposed to be responsible for our children. You think you've accepted his death totally?
1: Some days, yes. And other days, no. You know, it's, it's kind of like a roller coaster. Yep. There are days where I'll feel like, okay, it's been six years. You know it's real now. You know he's not coming back. There's not going to be any phone calls. His birthday is July 30th.
0: Did you say July 30th? July 30th. 30. That's my son's birthday.
1: Oh, you're kidding. No. Oh, my God. Well. So, you know, there are days when I, I feel like, okay, you survived. You survived six years. You don't have a choice. I mean, we have to find a way to survive. Unfortunately, you know, I don't believe in killing myself because Matt would never have wanted me to do that. But the reality, as you know, is so, it goes against nature. We're not supposed to bury our children. Right, right. They're supposed to be here to say goodbye to us. You know, I look at the devastation that my oldest son, Michael, has suffered. That was his only sibling.
0: Right, like my daughter.
1: I tell you, I think this is one loss that time really doesn't change. Like I said, I I have good days where I can say, you know, I know Matt's in a better place. He's in heaven. He's with God, and he is at peace, and he is healed and whole. And then there are days when I'm like, God, I wanted you to save him, but I wanted you to save him my way, not your way, my way. Like you said, the birthday's coming up, the holidays, yeah. the memories. People who tell you that once you get past all the firsts, no. you're going to feel like a new person. It doesn't
0: work that way. These
1: people <laughs> really need to keep their opinions to themselves because they have no clue what they're talking <laughs> well, about. Well,
0: that's everybody grieves in their own way. We have our path. You grieve in your way. My wife grieves in her way. Maybe they're fooling themselves, these people, but you have to accept what people say at face value. You know, there's a hole in your heart that will never, ever be filled. And you have to to remember, like you said, Matt wouldn't want this for you. Matt would want you to go on. I want to talk about stigma. How did it affect you and, and Matt?
1: You know, when he was alive, you know, I told everybody that I worked with that he was going to Florida because he got a job. Because, you know, God forbid, you know, nurses are supposed to be kind and passionate, yeah. but uh, they eat their young, really. Uh, <laughs> so They'd be talking about their kids going to college or getting married yeah. or having babies. And I'd be sitting there thinking, yeah, my, my kid's doing drugs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. It's
0: there, especially at that time.
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, it was really bad. And then, you know, you hear about, well, you must have been a really bad mother. You know, um, what, uh, what did you do? What's your parenting? You know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I had two sons, and they were both raised the same way. And one went to the Coast Guard Academy, and he's married, has a child, and uh, he and he asked for a better son. And Matthew was a wonderful son, but he had a disease. Exactly. And I think that's the problem. People think they do it to themselves because they want
0: to. you got it Mary Beth.
1: and they don't they don't have a choice with me having this cancer now and the back surgery that i had to have i can tell you they gave me opioids and i was terrified they only gave me 10 milligrams right i was in so much pain i had to take Okay, I really did, and I thought, and I thought, and I I thought, you know what, if if there is a genetic predisposition, Matt got from somewhere, so what if it was from me? And, you know, I didn't want to go down that path that he went down, but I can tell you, as I continued to take them, I became addicted, and it was the weirdest feeling, because one day I skipped one, because I thought, okay, I'm just going to stop, because I'm really not in that much pain now, I can handle it. I can tell you, within probably about two hours, I started getting sweaty. Yeah. I started getting nauseous. I felt like crap. I started to have to run to the bathroom, and I was like, what in God's name is happening to me? And then it was like, oh, "Oh my God, you're addicted. You are addicted, just like Matt was. And how easy was that? I had legitimate surgery, just like he did. Right. Right. They gave me Percocet, just like they gave to him. I, for some reason, was able to stop cold turkey. And I can tell you, for three days, I thought, oh, my God, just take the damn pill. Just take Mm -hmm. the damn pill, because you don't want to feel like this. And I thought, no, no, no. You can't do it. You can't do it. It got to the point where I told my husband, get these pills out of here, because I can't trust myself. Now, here I am, an educated, registered nurse, and I am battling my brain. Right. to not take these poison pills, which just took over my brain. And mm. I was like, now I understand. Now you get it. And there's no stigma. I'm no. not a bad person. Of course I, I'm not. I'm not homeless. I'm not dirty. Right. I'm an educated person. It can happen. To anybody. Anybody. And that's the fallacy that society thinks it's only the low lights. It's only people that are homeless. It's only people that don't work. Oh, i got news for you. There's many doctors that are addicted. There's pilots that are addicted. Teachers that are addicted. There's nurses. that are addicted.
0: And everywhere. Doesn't matter where you live. It's a very unforgiving drug. Without the stigma, do you think anything would have changed?
1: I do. I I think the insurance industry would have been more on board to help keep them in treatment longer. I think they, they thought they were not worth saving, that they would rather save money and save the life of somebody who supposedly didn't want to live that was doing this to themselves. If they treated me with my cancer diagnosis, the way they treat me, right. I, I would be dead. But thank you, God. Um, the insurance industry doesn't look down uh, on me, but they certainly did look down on me.
0: Hopefully, there will be pressure now where they have to change those laws. They have to fight these insurance companies. And it has to be done by society. It can't be done, you know, by you complaining or 10 people complaining. It's got to be, like you said, you have to talk to your congresspeople, your senators, your local legislators, your state government. That's the way we're going to fix this. Even though you say back then the treatments and everything were horrible, if you had better resources for Matt, the ones that we're getting today, I would think he might have made it.
1: I agree. I think he would have made it. First of all, I would have the knowledge. I would have pushed harder. I would have understood more as to what he was going through. And I would have fought for him to stay in. Call the senators, which I have done. I mean, I've been involved in legislation here in my state of Delaware for six bills to get passed on how people with substance abuse disorder are treated. They're not criminals. You know, they deserve the same exact treatment as anybody else.
0: They're sick people.
1: Absolutely.
0: Why do you think people still believe and uphold this stigma? Where does it come from?
1: I think it comes from old-school thinking. I, I, I hear moms on Facebook, and it really blows my mind. Well, you know, they, they use... They, they, why why did they even stick that needle on their arm the first time? Because they did. They had no idea that it was going to change their lives. They had no idea they were going to become addicted. Nobody wants to become addicted. They were probably just looking for a thrill, just like a kid at a party when you pop a pill. Right,
0: you're you're taking risks when you're that age. You're feeling out, you're making decisions, and you don't understand the ramifications at that age. Hell, oh, we all did it. I did it. I remember doing stupid things.
1: Sure, I mean, I remember, like, drinking at football games, you know, and I was a cheerleader, and it's just like, how stupid is that, you know? <laughs> But you know, it was you wanted to be cool. You wanted, exactly. to, you know, you wanted to fit in. And I think there's a lot of peer pressure, definitely, reality, which is bad peer pressure. And I know a lot of people who's lost children, and they were never addicted, but the pill that they took was fentanyl.
0: Exactly. You
1: know, it was one pill. Not knowing. And that was it.
0: Tiny little flakes of this fentanyl kills people. It's yep. It's this is the next confrontation we have to have too. Were you aware of, or do you have, any tools, we call it a toolkit, to help you after an OUD passing? I think I recall you saying you like to exercise and walk. Would that be part of your toolkit?
1: It would, and I used to ride my bike, like on bad days, and I would just get on my road bike, and I'd go on a trail where I was by myself, and I would scream, and I would cry, and I would talk to myself, get it all out. And then I'd be like, okay, you can be sane again, you know, because you're this insane woman on this bike, but you need to get this out. But yes. I used to do yoga four days a week just to get out of your mind. Exactly. Unfortunately, now because of the back surgery, I'm not able to do either. Oh. But what I do now is I walk. And I'll tell you, I write. journaling yeah i i wrote a book and called letters to man and it was published on his birthday last year wow yes and it's available on amazon and it chronicles my journey after his death you know and i also find that the advocacy work knowing that i am making changes to help other mother's children get better treatment than my son did and maybe saving a few lives along the way that's it That helps me with my healing. Another thing that I did was I started a missionary called A Hug from Matt. Matthew, I I took him downtown one day when he was in a really bad way, and this was really stupid, but, you know, we did stupid things back then to get some drugs because I knew if he didn't get some drugs, it was going to be really bad for him. There was a man there that had no shirt on, and I'll never forget, Matt got out of the car, took his shirt off, and gave it to this man. Aww. And I said, You know, Matt, what are you doing? And he said, Mom, I have a lot of shirts at home. He doesn't have any. You know, and I looked back on that and I thought, Wow, you taught me. And I didn't even know I was being taught. <laughs> So I started a hug from Matt, which is, you know, I was standing in the shower one day, and I just thought, what do I miss the most? And he gave yep. the most incredible yep. hug.
0: Just like my he son.
1: Like, <laughs> yeah, he was like six foot two, and I'm like five two. He'd wrap me up in this big bear hug. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to do what he did. So I make backpacks, and they say a hug for Matt on them. And I put non-perishable food and all kinds of hygiene items. And during the winter, I'll put hand warmers and, you know, things like that. During the summer, I change it all up. And we distribute them to the homeless throughout the state of Delaware.
0: That is awesome. Matt is like his mother. He is. Well, he was a good, he, You said he, he had this great soul and caring. It's just, what, a, what an amazing person.
1: And I'll tell you, if I didn't have my faith, I don't know what I would have done. I was pretty mad at God when Matt first died. I I really was. Didn't want to talk to him anymore. Didn't even know what to pray for anymore because all I ever did was pray that he took care of Matt. And, you know, he didn't do that in my book. And we used to have some pretty heated conversations that I, I left and I said, oh, my God, if my Catholic nuns, they would wash their mouth out of <laughs> if they heard how I was talking to God right now. But, you know, we, we've got an understanding now. We've agreed to disagree.
0: <laughs> I like he that.
1: He saw the bigger picture, if that makes sense to you, well, yes. that I was unable to see. And there could have been far worse things coming for Matt. That would have been horrible
0: the other thing is it's not the amount of years that you live it's what you do in those years that didn't change yeah. matt was still Matt. yeah and he, he was sick that's it case closed and you can absolutely hopefully you'll find some solace in that knowledge i and, do
1: believe me i, I know and, and you know i wish i had recognized The disease earlier, you know, you recognize it after you educate yourself after they're gone because you're too crazy busy wrapped up in trying to get them into treatment or, you know, trying to save them however you can. You don't have time to do all the research and and to go to different conferences and educate yourself.
0: But even doing that at the time Matt was sick, all the experts guided you, right?
1: Right, yeah.
0: So it's just bad timing. You don't know until after. I just want to thank you for sharing some things that you said, I'm going to share this with you that you probably haven't shared before. I appreciated your honesty. I just hope you can find some kind of peace.
1: Thank you, Harris. I really appreciate that, and I am working on it. It's a daily thing. I know. Baby steps, I say.
0: That's good.
1: Baby steps.
0: Thanks for listening. We appreciate it very much. To stay tuned with These Ghosts Must Be Heard, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at TheseGhostsPod. And take a look at our website, VoicesFromTheOpioidCrisis.com, to hear more stories and share your own if you'd like. Our podcast is now streaming on Spotify, Amazon, Apple Music, and coming to more soon. So there's plenty of ways to hear these ghosts. And as Zach used to say, peace out.